0: Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience.
1: Edward Asmar, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. I guess we should mention that you and I know each other from work.
0: Yep. Yep. I'm an employee. What do you consider yourself? Sponsored by slash pseudo employee. So wow. I think the official title is entrepreneur in residence uh, right now. Um, but oh, yeah, cool. is that Your official title. I think so. I, I, I haven't seen an org chart with that written on it, so I don't know how official it is, but that is what the competition slash the, uh, the position program was called on the entrepreneur in residence program.
1: Got it. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back to the entrepreneur part of that. Great Uh, title. Very cool. All right. So uh, I I have to say you and I were recording for 12 (laughs) minutes yesterday and a pretty bad storm came through and knocked out my Internet and it came back on for like five minutes. We tried again and then it went out again. And so we've we've punted to the next day. So I appreciate uh, your willingness to punt to the next day. And uh, thanks for being available to two nights
0: in a row. Of course. Yeah, it was pretty apocalyptic yesterday here as well. Um, I live on the first floor, um, where I am, so it can get pretty scary when it rains. (laughs) Uh, Scary
1: from a thunder and
0: lightning perspective or from a flood perspective or both? Uh, neither. I guess, I, I guess I exaggerated a little bit. Just, you can hear the water outside and you can see it. And if you step outside, there's lots of puddles. So scary is the wrong word. Just inconvenient. Yeah. (laughs) Inconvenient.
1: And it sounds like drainage isn't perfect where you live. Yeah.
0: The drainage is, is quite an issue. Um,
1: All right. So I I know the answer to this question, but since we're recording, (laughs) uh,
0: where were you born? I was born in D.C. Uh, And do you consider yourself a a D.C. guy? I am a D.C. guy through and through. I will uh, advocate for D.C. to anyone who listens. I'm a big, big fan. And and I moved back here. I voted with my feet, my dollars, my life. So, yeah, I, I love it here. Yeah. So besides D.C., where else have you lived? So when I was a kid, uh, we lived in Ecuador for between three and four years. I never actually know because I was so young. We moved when I was like eight months old. Um, and all I really remember is I started pre-K three or pre-K four um, when we came back here, which, you know, three or four years. <laughs> um, and then I, other than that, I was based here throughout, um, went to college in California and um, but it was cool with my mom's job. so she worked for the World Bank. She would often have to travel a lot. Um so I got to travel with her a bunch on her business trips and there were times when she would be like stationed in other countries long term. Um so for example, she was in Ethiopia once for some period of months and I went for a summer for like a month. Uh, and that was like a pretty common type of thing that would happen, which was very cool. So kind of like based in DC but got to go a bunch of different places and explore and Yeah, so fairly
1: worldly uh, for such a a young guy, because you're how old are you, Eddie?
0: I am 25 now. So 25 and you've probably been to how many countries, you think? I think my resume, because it's always like a fun little item to get people to talk says like 50, I want to say, is when I had last counted. Um, that could be wrong. I, I have my resume on my computer so I can look, and I know that one's accurate just in case, you know, um, but I think it's in that, in that, in that, um, yeah, no, nobody's going to fact in check realm. you on that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, if my math's right, you're doing about two countries a year of life. That would make a lot of sense. Um, because usually when I would go places with my mom, like she, she just like really wanted to take full advantage of it. Um, so she would, she would just go crazy. Like if we were in, so for example, she lived in Lesotho for a while, um, which is the tiny country in the middle of South Africa. Uh, And we went to every country in the neighborhood uh, (laughs) just because she wanted to take advantage of it, which I I mean, was amazing. Um, But yeah, two a year, honestly, even sounds conservative with the way my mom did things
1: yeah that's uh i mean most of humanity doesn't get those opportunities so in a lot of ways you were very fortunate and you're probably a lot better off for having
0: experienced so many different cultures a hundred percent i mean it was that's definitely the thing i am most thankful for in my childhood and growing up um it, it was awesome and really cool to see places all over um yeah, and very thankful to my mom obviously for making that possible. Um, it, it was often the sort of thing where she, I think I like I mentioned, she'd have a business trip, you know, um, and I just tag along and stay in the hotel room. <laughs> so a lot of them weren't, you know, official like tourism visits. I was just along for the ride. Not not the uh, worldly experience. Maybe when you're just hanging out in the hotel. Well, what she would do, and what she did in Ethiopia this time, and um, other places, sometimes she had friends who would take me around. But like in Ethiopia, she just hired a guy to hang out with me. Um, it was like a twenty-two-year-old guy or something who I guess you know she found. Um, who he just—I was there, I think, two weeks, and we just hung out. He just took me places. Uh, He's a great guy. Yeah. It sounds <laughs> like you got along with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a really fun experience. Um, That's really cool what
1: uh for the core of your mom's uh job uh what what did she do
0: yeah so she she's like bounced around a bit she was at the world bank i think she was actually i don't want to i don't know the number exactly she but before she retired last year i think she was up there in like top 20 longest tenured world bank employees like consecutively she'd been there for more than 30 years um i think So she was there a long time, um, but she, what she, the role she kept returning to and that she did the most was resident representative, um, which is basically like the private banker slash like diplomat for the world bank to a given country. Um, so that's why we lived in Ecuador. She was the resident representative there. And then when she was in Lesotho, um, that she was the resident representative there, um, as well. That's really cool. Uh,
1: I'm a big fan of going places, um, but some are better than
0: others. What's your favorite uh, place you've ever been? I think that's always a really hard question to answer. And I think it comes down to, frankly, to expectations. Because um, I think for some places, you really have really high expectations, and you get there, and it's like, all right. Um, and then there are some you just know nothing about, and you show up, and it blows you away. And for me, that was honestly Montenegro, <laughs> uh, hmm. sort of a random place, but... Um, We only stopped there, uh, I think for two days, because we were like driving through that part of Europe. And it was amazing. Uh, I always look back at those two days, like one of the coolest places I've ever been. And so just different from like the vast majority of tourists there are Russian. Mm. Uh, At at least that's in the places where I was. Um, And I think so many places you visit today, everything is English and things are like take catered to the American audience. Um, And it was really interesting there because it was the total opposite. Like there were like signs in Russian, you know, the hotels had stuff in Russian. Um, It was just kind of funny and cool. And you felt like you were actually one of the few tourists there who wasn't like Russian.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm a bit of a, uh, and I proved last night that I don't know geography perfectly, but I've done this sort of nerdy thing with friends where I'm like, "Let's, let's just name all the countries in Pick a Continent montenegro is usually the last sovereignty mentioned in uh <laughs> in
0: yeah it's a pretty random place that's what i mean that's why i had no expectations whatsoever but uh, i was blown away
1: blown away just because it, it did not fit any expectations you had or, or didn't fit many
0: sounds like i think it also has all the things i like um like i really like dramatic coastlines i love castles like as a kid um So like my mom is British and we used to go to the UK like once every two years, I want to say. And like every time we would see like on average a castle a day because I just loved castles. So that was like a huge thing (laughs) I was into. Um, And Montenegro just had some really cool castles, which I continue to love, but at a more sustainable pace. Um, But the castles there and the fortresses there were just incredible um, and really just amazing backdrops.
1: Yeah, and people that have lived mostly in North America can't fathom how old some of those structures are.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, <laughs> that's something that's really funny to me. Having gone to sort of an international school and not really having done American history, is like Americans will sort of be like, "Oh, this is a hundred years old," and it's like treat it with like a huge amount of reverence. Um, and I always find that really funny.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, and you are American, so let's talk about the, <laughs> yeah. the school you went yeah. to. You, K through twelve. You you went to what's the name of your school?
0: It was Washington International School. Um,
1: yeah, and it's a it's a private school, but uh, the students are not typically from DC.
0: Typically, yeah, especially when I was there. Um, so there used to be this deal uh, for embassies, the World Bank, IMF, whatever, where the employers would pay for private school tuition. Um, and what that meant is all those kids went to private school. Which private school do they go to? Mine, because it was the international school where they could learn in their native language. Um, they would be surrounded by other sort of like diplomats, kids, whatever. Um, and that worked super well then. Um, I think benefits have gotten a lot worse over time. <laughs> and I think the school also realized that it's not in the cultural DNA um, of foreign people to donate money to schools. And mm. so it's become a lot more American. Um, wow. But uh, when I was there, it was it was still much less American uh, in terms of like, like, yeah, just American people going there because they liked it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, notion. I I didn't. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, most schools are interested in money, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's very apparent. <laughs> Well, it
1: sounds like you you feel bad about that. You wish that uh, your school had maintained its international
0: feel. I do. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a shame um, because it it is. It's, it it was a very unique culture that I really appreciated, and they had sort of this mantra of like making you a global citizen, which I always laughed at when I was there because it sounds so silly. Um, but I think they actually succeeded to an extent with most of the kids. Uh, and I think a big part of the success there was the, uh, diversity of people that were there. Um, that is definitely not as true today. Um, I think diversity of nationality to be clear. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the diversity
1: of nationality was pretty obvious when you went there, yeah. uh, based on the way you've described it. Uh, maybe not so, uh, socioeconomically though, maybe socio
0: made. No, exactly. And that's why I made that. I clarified that. Um, I think they did not in fact do a very good job, um, of being socioeconomically diverse at all. Um, because it was very, uh, it was that slice, right? It's, it's people who rose to be ambassadors or work at the imf or work at the world bank which is a certain slice a certain socioeconomic slice uh, which is very homogenous um yeah you admit you i know. think they have done better there uh so to be fair they have done a lot better there um they yeah <laughs> okay yeah i mean look uh
1: organizations change over time and some of those changes yeah. are are good and some are not so good. It sounds like they've experienced a bit of both over the last few years.
0: No, I think it's a really good thing that they've improved the sort of socioeconomic split. I think what's a less good thing is not keeping the nationality split. Um, Like I think for, like, I think that we definitely needed more people from DC at the school. and I think they've done a good job of that, which is really, really good. I think what we didn't necessarily need is a lot of American people who just wanted their kids to have an international education and could pay full price. Um, like, I think at that, like, Sidwell is probably a better place for that, you know? Um, I think that kind of hurt the the international mission of the school a little bit, um, Yeah, it's it's a bit
1: uh, unusual to spend most of your life in the U.S., but I'm guessing you know more about uh, cultures from other countries better than at least when you were in school, better than you knew American culture and history.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Like we didn't do American anything in school. Like I think one of the funniest moments when I went to uh, when I first started school. So I went to college at Stanford, um, which was in many respects super American. Like I think something astounding, like 50% of the students are actually from California. Um, Like it's way more Californian than you'd think. Um, But like I took my first econ class there and everything was in dollars. It was about the Fed. It was like just like totally US centric (laughs) in a way that shocked me. Um, Whereas like my economics classes in high school had all been more international. And, and, you know, we might do problems in different currencies, (laughs) like it sounds really dumb. But it was, uh, it was kind of a culture shock going to Stanford and everything being so America centric. Same with like history, for example, like, we did world history, and we did like history of like, every place, you know, it was like, very geographically um, diverse. So like, we did Chinese history, or history of the Middle East, or different bits of uh, we did African history. We did South American history. We did like all of that, and American people were always confused when I knew about history in those places. And I always thought that was sort of a given <laughs> that that was like what you learned in school. And so it was kind of shocking um, when people just like all they knew history wise or like what they had learned was just American. I was like, how did you spend years on like two hundred years? Um, <laughs> like what <laughs> what was the curriculum? It's all about depth, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about depth, I guess. And, and to be clear, I don't have that depth. Like, I I don't know a whole lot about the U.S. So.
1: Yeah, when I was in school, I, I went to K through twelve in the in central Virginia. It was a lot of American history and some European history, but that was about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, which was pretty limited, all things considered.
1: <laughs> Super limited, and, and you not happened to, elsewhere. Most. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we don't even draw maps accurately in the U.S. Yeah yeah i mean there there there's certain countries in other continents that are a lot bigger than they than we portray them on our maps yeah yeah it's 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 weird and by the way i was in my 50s when i learned that (laughs) a little sad are you mentioned languages learning uh via different languages so english was uh part of the core experience for everybody that went there or is that not true
0: uh yeah so everyone did english to some extent uh well to It it depended on grade level. So, for example, in primary school, uh, all classes or you did half your day in English, half your day in Spanish uh, or whatever language it was you chose. I happened to do Spanish. Uh, Whereas in middle school, it was by class. So like science and math would be in English and then history and geography, for example, in my case, were in Spanish. Uh, and so it sort of depended on grade level, but you basically did your whole education bilingually. So in a blend of of whatever two, la- two languages you were focused on, whereas where one was always English. Uh, why Spanish? Um, so like I mentioned earlier, I had lived in Ecuador as a kid. Uh, and when we moved back to the US, my mom wanted me to continue with Spanish and I was already fluent. So it made sense. Uh, my dad actually at the time wanted me to do French. Uh, <laughs> but wait wait, wait,
1: wait, wait. Before we go to your dad in French, you were already fluent in Spanish after being basically a toddler?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I learned Spanish and English at the same time level. Like, I, when I, when we moved back from uh, Ecuador, I was speaking both Spanish and English, like interchangeably.
1: Is that something that is common for kids that age? Because I know small children are sponges in that way, but. It, it doesn't seem like that's typical.
0: Um, I think my parents talk about it like it's impressive, but I also think that those are the same parents that put up my like fourth grade art. So I think it's pretty, <laughs> my take is it's pretty like, I think if you, if you grow up in where people are speaking different languages, I think it happens naturally. I mean like my dad, he's Lebanese and, and so many Lebanese people grow up bilingual in French and Arabic um, and that seems to work out so i think it just comes and or my girlfriend for example so she was born in china um and she speaks both chinese and english uh, fine
1: uh you were telling me yesterday that it's not really classic uh, or formal french same for arabic that you learned from your dad yeah
0: yeah that's true so in lebanon they don't really speak those languages purely. Um, so maybe it is a little harder (laughs) than it appears. Um, they kind of mix and match and in Arabic, especially, they just have their own version that is quite different from the written or formal Arabic. Um, yeah.
1: And I think you called the combination of the two Frenchic. Yeah. I made that up though. (laughs) Arabic. Arabic. (laughs) Yeah. It could be that too, but maybe less. (laughs) I I think I like, uh, Frenchic better. I think I like your made up term better than mine. So you consider yourself somebody who speaks French and Arabic as well, but it doesn't translate to all parts of the Middle East or all parts of...
0: Yeah, and I would never say that I'm like fluent in those. I'm varying degrees of conversational um, in them.
1: (laughs) You practice your Spanish these days?
0: Uh, Yes, actually. Um, So I guess we can talk about the entrepreneurship stuff. Um, Well... I had always been told as I was growing up, you know, it's really good that like you speak languages and you're interested in language. It's going to like help in your career later. And that was never true up until now. Um, you know, there's not a lot of jobs apply- coming out of college that say like, you know, bilingual required. Um, but when I started Hanza, which is the company that I, I'm, I'm working on now, uh, where just as a brief overview, uh, we're looking to empower uh, small businesses Uh, so just like think, uh, the tire shop in your neighborhood or a restaurant or whatever, just like mom and pop style businesses, um, to, to basically have greater access to trust products. So like financing, credit cards, loans, insurance, whatever. But anyway, one thing I noticed, uh, when I was doing research on this space is a huge number of successful or just small business owners in general in the United States uh, today are Spanish speaking um, and Spanish speaking first. Uh, like they prefer uh, to speak Spanish. Uh, they prefer to like consume media in Spanish. Um, and so one thing that we've started doing with Hanza is uh, just because it seemed easy enough. Like I speak Spanish. Why not do it? Um, is we published our site bilingually. Um, we are just trying to offer everything in spanish so i've gotten to practice quite a lot there um and have also talked to or interviewed some some business owners who spoke spanish uh, or preferred to speak spanish obviously for the most part they speak english as well um they just prefer to, to speak Spanish.
1: yeah and there's something lost um uh, in translation when one of the parties or both parties aren't uh fluent or- in the yeah. language. So, if you can meet them in the place where they feel mo- most comfortable, you probably uh, learn more and, and form a deeper bond. I imagine. I think so. it also just
0: creates some trust. Um, so. It's yeah,
1: I, I think it's brilliant. I think you starting with bilingual from the beginning is is the way to go, uh, especially uh, Spanish. I think Spanish, uh, at least in North America, and clearly in South America, are the the languages to go with. And I I wish I had taken Spanish when I was younger.
0: Yeah. And the thing is, you see so many companies, not just in this small business space, but just in general, just don't do it. Um, And I think at a certain level, it's because they're too far along. Right. They've done so much work and it's so hard now to go back and translate everything and they have to like build everything from scratch. Um, And I kind of thought, hey, I've got this golden opportunity. I'm starting totally from scratch anyway. If I just force myself to make everything bilingual to start, um, then I won't have this issue in two years when all of a sudden I need to like translate everything or rehaul, overhaul everything. And that'll be like a nice competitive advantage that I have.
1: Definitely a competitive advantage. Um, I I think you're also being sensitive to, um, your marketplace or, or your, your business consumers, what they need. Um, I, I, Small business in in America today seems to be in, in the at least in my lifetime uh, the toughest spot it's ever been. It seems like everybody uh, by everybody I mean governments I mean um, other businesses that are their business model is more of a support other businesses sort of thing. They they tend to gravitate to the full scale giant corporations and and maybe leave the small business person behind. Um, Can you share your thoughts on small business in America these days?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think, unfortunately, you've got, I think there's so much innovation happening today and over the past few years. But whenever you look at that innovation, it's either, you know, startups for startups. So people who are trying to help out other people like them. Um, (laughs) Innovation for enterprise, like you mentioned, for really big companies, because, And I think the the incentives there make sense. You sign up one giant company as your customer or as the person you're helping or working with, um, and you're set, right? They're huge, huge uh, partners. They have deep deep pockets, and you can really prove yourself out without doing a whole lot of sales work. Um, You can also innovate for consumers, right? For just normal people. And there, there's just such a volume of people who could be interested that you're almost guaranteed to hit somebody. And also there's just this like, huge amount of tooling that lets you reach normal people uh, easily and cheaply like you can advertise on Facebook you can advertise on Instagram on TikTok now you can get data from all sorts of uh, firms like the credit bureaus and you can figure out like hey i've built the best product for people like bob bob has a dog a car a house and he's 33 and i can find bob <laughs> and like get my thing in front of him really easily today and unfortunately none of these things are true if you run a small business um you're not big enough that it's worth building just for you so people aren't uh, looking at you the way they look at enterprises um and then like there's not this tooling or this understanding about who you are and what you do in, in the same way as as for you in your personal life and so even if I build like the very best most innovative product for, tire shops with two to three employees who, um, work on Fords. I don't know. I'm just making something up. Like it's really hard for me to find that group, which makes it prohibitive for me to build for them and innovate for them. Um, which I think really sucks.
1: Uh, yeah. So there's this weird chasm between the individual consumer and enterprise.
0: And I've seen that in, in, so I've gone on a bit of a, of a kick of just going and walking into small businesses or having friends refer me to business owners that they know and talking to them. And I see this all the time where I'll talk to an owner and they'll say, yeah, in my personal life, I, you know, I bank with a neobank. I save using a fintech. I'm invested in, I started investing uh, successfully. I did all this and that, and it's really encouraging and it's great. And then we talk about their business, and they're like, "Yeah, I still use paper checks, and I bank with like like Cross River Bank." (laughs) I don't don't, I'm making that up, but like you know their local bank, which is not very good, Um, and they're just not really like it. It doesn't line up, right? They're so tech forward and so so like able to access innovation in their personal lives. Um, but in their business lives, they just don't, um, yeah. And it's
1: because nobody's really built the services with the small business person in mind.
0: Yeah. A lot of the times it's because it doesn't exist. A lot of the times too, it's just education. Um, like they don't know what's out there. Um, and then it's also an element of trust, which I find interesting, um, that people seem to be more willing to take uh, risks in their personal life. Um, than in their business life, uh, which is interesting, uh, but true. So they might be uh, more willing to take a gamble on like a brand new player uh, when it's their personal bank account than when it's the business bank account.
1: Uh, that's,
0: that's interesting. Why do you think that is? Um, I think often there's maybe a fear around like regulation in the business space. Um, of like, hey, is this legit? Is it okay? Um, people are seem to be very scared in general of running afoul of regulations for their business. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's one piece. I think another piece uh, is just stability. I think people are okay to some degree with things breaking in their personal lives or having to find an alternative. But I think especially if you're a customer facing business or you you, you, you have a reputation that you need to uphold, and in many cases for small businesses, their reputation is everything. Um, and I think if you choose to work with a partner who breaks down or stops working or is not great for whatever reason, um, and that could have an impact on your reputation, that's that's pretty bad for you as a business.
1: Yeah, I guess a mistake in the business world can feel earth shattering. Where a mistake in your personal yeah. life is easier to
0: overcome. I think that's true. I mean, I, I still have a lot to learn, but that's sort of what I hypothesize.
1: Yeah, um, I, I could I could make up some theories, but I don't I don't none of them are grounded at all, so I won't do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let, let, let's go back to school. Were you yep. super academic? Like it was all about school. You love attending class. You love doing homework. Or did you have, or did you combine that with interest outside of the academic experience?
0: Yeah, I was. N- it's a hard question to answer. I would say I was very academic personally, but not very academic like in school. <laughs> like I never liked going to class. Um, I did homework very quickly. Um, I once got on a report card. Someone wrote perfunctory, um, and that stuck with me. Um, and I was never, so I was never a huge fan really of like the formal education or formal education experience. That being said, like in my free time, all I did was read. <laughs> like I was constantly reading, like I would read history books. I would read science books. I, I just like, I was a very self-guided academic is the way that I would put it. No, I, I love um, the answer because I, I was yeah.
1: thinking school structure and the academics associated with that environment. But you're right. Self study is uh, huge, and the fact that you were uh, a teenager or preteen and you were doing that on your own uh, is is awesome and unusual.
0: Yeah, it was great, and it was actually really cool. By junior junior year, as I think, when teachers really started to notice that I was doing that, um, and they kind of encouraged it, which was great. I had a history teacher, and a math teacher, and an economics teacher, actually who started just like assigning me books outside of the classroom, um, which I would just read in my own time. And we would meet, I think it was like once a month uh, to like talk about what I'd read, which was pretty cool. Um, and I just really enjoyed that they were encouraging of what I was doing and helpful, uh, which was great. <laughs> so you, you were adulting as a 17 year old. I, I didn't really adult until I was well into my twenties. <laughs> That's one way to put it. I think I just have never done so well um, like in college, for example, I I think I went to probably like I went to very few lectures. Um, I never I never learned very well when it's just like someone talking. Um, I always have learned a lot better from reading, um, and so I always just preferred that.
1: Yeah, it, there have been lots of studies done that say that the typical learner with a with an average intellect will retain twenty percent of what they hear someone else describe. Uh, if you give them a visual, the their retention's better. Uh, if you have the student do the actual thing, they actually practice whatever the concept is, it, there's yeah. even more retention. There's some uh, fields of study where you can't actually practice. It, it is yeah. uh, purely intellectual, but um, yeah, it's funny. And, and the most of the developed world in a lot of ways still tries to teach via lecture.
0: Yeah, I'm really, I'm a big lecture detractor. I never, I never enjoyed lectures. (laughs) That was actually a big reason. So I did, I did my undergrad, I did computer science. um, And then I decided to go back to Stanford to do a master's in history. Uh, And a big part of that is because I felt like I'd missed out a little bit on the academic experience doing computer science, because the vast majority of those classes were just like giant lectures. Um, The assignments were just practices right implement this uh answer this math problem um and i didn't feel like i was really getting sort of like the liberal arts experience uh and then so so i went back to do history which was the complete opposite like every class was a small like 10 person seminar where we would just talk about ideas and the assignments were just like write what you think you know um big essays. And I enjoyed that a lot more as an academic experience.
1: So you, you got your undergrad in computer science and a master's in, in history, in history, a master's in history. Yeah. <laughs> and I got to tell you two things real quickly, based on you, you getting a master's in history. Um, one, Rob, Rob has just joined us. He, he, his nickname is silent Rob. He's actually not going to say a thing. He loves listening to these conversations and he, right. and he, he does the, uh, the write-ups that accompany the recording. So, uh, welcome, Silent Rob, but you won't hear him say anything. And Rob's a history major, which ties to history. I'm also a history major, Eddie. And when I had to declare my major, and I waited well into my uh, junior year of college to declare because I was all over the place. I really didn't (laughs) know what I wanted to to do, or or certainly not even, I didn't know what I wanted to study. My dad somehow got me on the phone and he knew I was waffling amongst majors. And he said, Hey, I want you to know any major's fine except history. And I just declared it literally like an hour before this conversation. <laughs> and he went into some detail about why a history
0: major was really a bad idea.
1: For me personally, well, he, he didn't, I, I got
0: awesome. a lot of talks about why it was a bad idea. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious what the reasoning you heard was. <laughs> so he said,
1: well, he basically said to me, do you want to be a lawyer? And I said, no, I do not. He said, do, yeah. you want, do you want to teach history? I said, maybe. And he said, do you want to do a lot of research? And I said, no, doesn't sound fun to me. And he goes, yeah, so why are you majoring in, in history <laughs> Because it was it was very much at, at, yeah I was going to college, whatever you majored in was kind of the, what you were going to do the rest of your life was the mindset yeah. and and uh, I'm glad culturally that we're, we've kind of broken out of that and you can go do anything at any time if you want.
0: Yeah, I mean for me I was lucky because I felt like I had this cushion of the computer science degree, um, which is obviously I guess what I felt back fell back on uh, after college. I'm, I'm not a working historian today, obviously. Um, <laughs> so i've done absolutely nothing with it um but uh yeah i was lucky enough to know that i could fall back on that like very practical computer science degree this episode is brought to you by Fudio. Fudio is a cafe serving coffee tea and smoothies with breakfast lunch and pastries plus you'll find products from local farms and makers for sale on site Find more info at ashlandvirginia.com. All
1: right. So, uh, you went to Stanford. Uh, how did you choose Stanford as a guy who grew up in an international school on the East coast?
0: Um, <laughs> the true story is pretty dumb. Um, but I really wanted to go far from home from DC. Uh, so that was like criteria one. Uh, so the only two places I really seriously applied were Stanford and Cambridge, okay. um, like in the UK. Uh I got into both. I actually couldn't decide between them, so I committed to both. Uh, <laughs> basically at the last minute, chose Stanford because I didn't want to do economics. The way it works in the UK is you apply for a specific major. Uh, and that's what you have to do. Uh and I realized that I wasn't sure that all I wanted to do was economics for the next three years. And I was right, obviously. Um, so I made the right decision. But that's basically it. I, I just decided I don't want to do economics. I guess why Stanford was one of those two. I didn't really answer, but I was really enamored with California. Um, <laughs> I just it's, thought it's it was a beautiful state. <laughs> I I'd never really been. I went once in tenth grade for a road trip, and it was it was cool. Um, I, I guess I did a summer program uh, as well. But in general, I just had like this really romanticized idea of California, and I thought it was going to be like the greatest place, just the greatest thing ever. Um, so, yeah, I, I picked Stanford mainly because it was in California.
1: The weather's better than Cambridge, certainly.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, I guess, I mean, I picked Stanford in the U.S. I was always going to apply to Cambridge because I was very enam- enamored with Cambridge for, for other reasons.
1: But So uh, for the typical student, uh, they don't even consider places like Cambridge or or Stanford uh you you obviously had to be very academically oriented and and achieved quite a bit uh before you graduated high school were you naturally a very are you, are you naturally a bright person or and think back to when you were a teenager like <laughs> there's some maturity things going on you're going through puberty it's, it's not quite what it's like uh as a 25 yeah. year old but were, was it just natural god-given intellect or were you super scrappy or was it a combination?
0: I would say it's more the way that things are measured. I think mm. I've always told, like, I think I'm a very good test taker, let me put it that way. And I have a very good memory, especially for things I read. Uh, and I think so much of academic sort of achievement and rigor and what gets you over the next hoop uh, in today, and especially when I graduated, I think they actually got rid of the essay for a lot of schools, which I actually think is a great thing, um, because I think it's so gamey. But basically, I was just really good at those things. Um, so for example, my mom had me take the ACT, I think it was when I was in like eighth grade. Um, and so I knew from a young age, I was just good at tests. Um, so I was the kid everyone hated. Like, I, I never really studied for them. I just showed up and I would, I would do really well, because I was. it was just a skill. Like, I was good at tests. I don't think that makes me smart, uh, necessarily. It just meant I was really good at taking tests. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> and like
1: that, Being really good at taking tests, I guess, has its applications in the real world, but they don't seem to be broad
0: or deep. Yeah. And that's what I always tell people. I think like I think it's a bit of a misnomer uh, academic achievement. I think there were things there are things that I'm really proud of and things that I was really good at but i think a whole lot of like oh what opens up elite colleges or lets you go to these really selective institutions is is almost purely test taking in
1: this stage <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean if, if you have a, a really strong gpa and you ace or nearly ace an aptitude yeah. you, you can go anywhere yeah. you want
0: exactly and that's that's basically what i had obviously you have to have some sort of so for cambridge that's actually basically all it is so in the uk they're they're very very number Uh, Oriented, or at least they were when I was applying. I don't don't know if it's changed. The only additional hoop they have you jump through is you have to do a series of interviews there, uh, which are notoriously weird, Uh, and mine were in fact very weird. But but that's about it. It's mainly numbers based. Uh, With Stanford, obviously they they like to talk about their holistic process, so there had to be a little bit more than grades. Um, And it's fun. They like write you a letter after you get in around why you got in. and I think to, to to send it back to what we were talking about earlier. Allegedly, it was my letters of recommendation from my teachers um, that said I was like, I think they said a voracious reader, um, and that's that's why they said I got into Stanford. <laughs> uh,
1: let's go back to the notoriously weird uh, interviews. So you interviewed, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I did the interview.
1: Process. What what was so you said notorious meaning? Like, you may or may not have found them weird. Did you find them weird? Oh, I, I certainly
0: found them weird. They were they were very strange. Um, but I had, like, been warned that they were weird and they have a reputation. Uh, so the reputation of them is, it, the way they work is, like, you sit down with an Oxford Don, which is, like, they're, the, they're sort of the professors in the colleges, uh, and they grill you for half an hour to an hour. And you often hear stories of people who walk out crying. Um, I actually saw someone walk out crying. Uh, They tend to not be so much like factual interviews rather than they're trying to trip you up or make you feel uncomfortable. Um, So for example, I think, I don't know if this is true, but my cousin had claimed that at her interview, someone had like, either worn a bathrobe or was like drinking tea, like just there's all these notorious stories of people doing weird of the Dons doing weird things in the interviews and causing people to be uncomfortable. Um and mine was nothing like that, but they were certainly really weird. Like one interviewer sat down, he was like, You're coming from the US. Why does healthcare work the way it does? Mm. Uh and like as if it was like my fault. Uh, <laughs> Have you defend something you didn't institute? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He was like, "Tell me why you you like do it this way." I was like, "I don't know." <laughs> Sorry. Um, and he was like Australian, uh, so it was it was pretty weird. Um, and then there was another guy uh, who. So I had I think two interviews, where I remember correctly. And the second one, it was like because it was for economics, it was a game theory interview, and he sets up this game on the board. And he tells me the rules, and he's like, "Let's play." We play, I lose. Like, let's play again. I play, I lose. Let's play again. I play, I lose. You know, and I'm kind of just sitting there, like, "What are we doing?" <laughs> it's been like ten minutes of us playing this stupid game on a on a on a whiteboard. Um, and then finally, he asks this question. He's like, "You keep losing. Why?" Um, and it turned out to be like this game theory thing of like why the game was set up such that I could never win by following the strategy he had told me to follow. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just like stuff like that where it really throws you off and it's just very odd. And he was also just an odd guy as well. Uh, And he had been the one who, right before my interview, I'd seen someone run out crying. Um, So I was pretty intimidated. Yeah,
1: so I I will share a couple of theories I have for that. (laughs) One is they had maybe a reputation that they kind of stumbled into back in the day and they thought it made them unique and they wanted to, to maintain that reputation. I don't know how much I believe that theory. The other thing is to be off-putting and to see how people react to yeah. um, someone behaving in odd ways or asking odd questions. Uh, I, I guess can be telling, but I'm not sure how important it is for a kid
0: trying to get a bachelor's degree in something. I think a big part of it is just trying to be off-putting to see how you react. Um, that's the the most common theory, <laughs> and I mean it works. People people reacted in weird ways.
1: Yeah, I don't know that you have to to be well. If you're preparing folks uh, sincerely for post-college life, then then I guess maybe that makes some sense. But it's if it, if it made a ton of sense, a lot of schools would be doing it, right?
0: Well, I think a whole lot of Cambridge and Oxford in general. I actually ended up studying abroad at Oxford while I was at Stanford, so I saw this firsthand. But a lot of it is just really antiquated, right? Like they've been doing this for hundreds of years. Um, and hundreds of years ago when they started doing this, so much of your education, and I mean, it continues to be true. Like they still have the tutorial system, where the vast majority of your classes are just one-on-one um, with a tutor. Mm. Um, like they just want to see can you can you deal with the pressure and can you get along uh, with these generally pretty like eccentric professors. Um, so, so it is actually a good preparation for the very specific education that you get at Oxford and Cambridge. Um, but like, would you need that to sit in a lecture hall? No. Um, but for, to get ready for a tutorial with that person, maybe, like, I think if I had actually, um, gone to Cambridge, my second interviewer would have been my like primary tutor, um, which means I would have worked with him directly. Um, so I think he was kind of sussing out as well. Like, do I want to work with this kid for the next three years?
1: Yeah. So it kind of feels like a job interview a bit too.
0: Yeah, a little bit. Cause it's very personal. The colleges, well, some of the colleges are very big, but some of the colleges are very small. So you never know.
1: Eddie, I, I don't know you really well, but I know you well enough to know that you put off a humble vibe. Um, Thank you. Can I, and, and I'm asking, you're not uh, offering, what did you get on the ACT in eighth grade? Do you remember?
0: Uh, I do not. I, I think it was in the thirties, but I do not know the exact.
1: Did you take it again after eighth grade?
0: Yeah, yeah, I took it for college in that one, I know.
1: <laughs> what did you get on that one? 35. I'm asking. You're not, 35? So yeah. you missed it by one. Do you, do you remember what you missed?
0: I do not. No. Okay. Uh, probably, it was always the math one, I think, because I've always been very sloppy with math uh, in the sense of like checking mistakes. Um, like I was always the guy, like I said, people kind of hated me uh in school um for my test taking habits but like i would finish the tests you know like an hour early generally um if like depending on how long the test was i would often finish much earlier than you were supposed to finish for lots of subjects that worked out great for math it often did not work out great um and so i would often make a lot of dumb mistakes um, so math is always the one where i don't do as well <laughs> so
1: because of that you missed you got 35 out of 36 instead of 36 yeah yeah yeah, I, I sat next to a guy in uh, one of my calculus classes in high school and, and to solve a calculus problem, I would typically need a page and a half or two pages of eight and a half by 11. We did everything manually with, with a pen or a yeah. pencil and he would get it done in like a third of a page. And I'm like, how did you do that? I don't understand what, what you just did. But I, I'm guessing uh, your brain and his brain are are fairly
0: similar. Maybe. Maybe. And And that looks great when you get it right. But uh, it's pretty funny when you get it wrong, which I did.
1: <laughs> can, I, can I ask your SAT scores? And by the <laughs> way, when you took it, was it all three? Was it three? Yeah, it was all
0: three? three. It was all three. Um, I That one, what was it? I want to say 2290, but I could be wrong. Um, I, I don't know. I think was 2290 it that, sounds that
1: right. That took the, the 110 away from Yes,
0: me. I believe that I got did i get an 800 i think i might have gotten an 800 in one of the english sections
1: i love the fact that you're 25 not that far removed from taking SATs, and you don't remember your score
0: it's i was never that so that was also a thing about me that i think i was never really focused on my grades or test scores like i would just show up to these things um, like I wasn't obsessed with them. I always sort of felt, and I mean, I think this is a sign of privilege and being super lucky that these things always worked out. Um, but I always felt like I get what I get. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just, just take the thing, see what the score is, submit it. It'll be fine. Um, yeah.
1: It, that requires, uh, I think I'll, I'll use the term bravery. Most people aren't that brave.
0: Yeah, maybe. I think I've just never, I've never felt the need to, I guess, be something I'm not, or uh, to, to have to. Or I just never respected the process that much. I think as well. Like I've never felt that those tests really accurately reflected much, mm-hmm. um, and I always felt like, all right, I'm good at it. I'm, I'm gonna give it the attention and respect it deserves. Um, and just <laughs> and it becomes a ticket to another stage
1: in your life, right?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Would I have a very different opinion if I were bad at them? Probably. I would probably still not respect them as much, but I probably would have, you know, done a whole lot more to prep or something. Um, but yeah, I was lucky enough that they were never very difficult, so I, I didn't pay too much attention to so. them. Was Stanford easy for you? It depends. Um, I think Stanford is where I learned my biggest strength isn't depth. Um, so I think what was interesting was every intro class I took at Stanford was really, or not intro class, but like there was a wall I hit in almost every subject where someone was better than me Mm. and not just someone, but lots of someone's, but I was one of the few people who could take up to that level in every subject and do well, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think i learned at stanford that my strength is breadth rather than depth um and i think that also came out in like the test scores for example and that sort of thing like i was always in like the composite 99th percentile but never in like the individual sections like high percentiles it was always like wow you're good at multiple things rather than really good at this one thing um that always came out uh and i think that was true at stanford like uh, with the exception of of history, I think I I, I held my own in some of the high, in the higher. Obviously, I did a master's in it, so I must have. Um, but for example, in CS, like I would say, I was probably one of the best people in my freshman dorm at like the first uh, series of classes. Um, but the farther we got, the more I felt outstripped, and like there were so many smarter people than me, and so much better, so many better people than me. <laughs> uh, and and so your aptitude maybe doesn't
1: have a ton of depth within a particular subject other than to your point, history, but your, your breath is interesting. I, I wonder if part of it is a subconscious
0: choice on your part, not to explore depth. I think so. I think I get, not that I get bored easily, but I think I've never, it's always been really hard for me to choose something and say, this is the thing I like, and this is the thing I'm good at. Um, so even if you look at, you know, the jobs I've had for my internships, I jumped between like business analyst, product manager, software engineer. Um, in fact, when I came to qualify, the big reason I chose to take the job at qualify, um, was I remember talking to Boomer and he was like, yeah, come here, see, see what you want to do, figure it out, try a bunch of different things. Um, and that's exactly what I did. So for the first I wanna say like five months I was at Qualify, I didn't really have like an official team or thing that I was doing. I was just doing all sorts of different random things. Um, and I love that. I, I, I'm immensely grateful for Qualify uh, having let me uh, do that. Uh, but yeah, it's always been really hard for me to choose like, hey, this is the thing I really like. And I think I would get distracted. So like in those higher level economics classes or computer science classes, I was thinking like, hey, it'd be really cool if I took this poly sci class. <laughs>
1: You know, um, well, as, as an entrepreneur, I, I think you have to uh, care about depth to some degree. But breadth, I think, is uh, much more important. That's what I keep telling myself. Um, I hope that that's true. <laughs> I, guess I, think, find, I guess you'll find out. But it, it's more than just yeah. you as an individual. There are a lot of things at play that you can't control
0: uh, or can't severely influence. Um Yeah. Like- I think that's right to an extent, though, because when you're starting out, you have to do, a li- like, your everything, right? Uh, I think I was talking to someone the other day, and they were like, well, who's doing your marketing? And I was like, me. <laughs> it's, it's me, too. And they were like, well, who's doing your tech? Me, too, you know? Yeah. Should, um, so you have
1: to uh, pick a topic in, in the interview. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And so you have to do a little bit of everything. But we're so small and we're so new that you don't necessarily need an expert in it. And I think one thing I'm good at generally is knowing when I'm bad or, or or bad at something or don't know that I'm out of my depth. And so I'm really looking forward to the day we actually succeed where I can start replacing myself one by one in these places. Um, and hopefully that corresponds to where I stop being good at it. Um,
1: yeah, Yeah. no, I I think there's an opportunity that it works out really, really well for you, and this may be an unfair question, Eddie, but if I was a small business guy and you and I were in an elevator for a couple of minutes, um, what's your elevator pitch? Have you been
0: working on one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done, I've gone through a lot of iterations, so this will just be the iteration that we have now. Um, Basically, the quick thing I would say is right now I could spend 20 to $30 to look up everything about your business there's a good chance I wouldn't find anything. If I did find something, there's a good chance what I would find would be wrong. As a result of that, anything you want that requires the company on the other end to trust you is either going to be overpriced or it's not going to find you. Why don't you tell me about yourself? I'm going to share it with those companies and I'm going to make that money that I could have paid on your behalf and pay it out to you. Does that sound like a good deal? Sounds like a great deal. Yeah. (laughs)
1: So your, your, your business model works for businesses seeking to do do business with other businesses.
0: Basically. Yeah. It's a, it's a way, uh, the idea is essentially that to market to small businesses or later in the pipeline to underwrite them is just prohibitively difficult and expensive in today's world. And the real losers in that situation are the small businesses themselves. Um, who either overpay uh, because of that or who just don't get a solution built for them. Or if a solution that is built for them exists, they don't know about it and they never find it. Um, And I kind of came to the realization, they're the only ones who know about themselves. Um, And they just need a way to be able to raise their hand and say, I'm a great business. Here's what you need to know about my business. Now give me what I want. And because there's tons of cost savings involved in doing that, um, we can basically collect the difference uh, between the old way and the new way um, and share uh, that revenue with the business itself. Because like I said, the business is the one who has that information and the business should own um, the the proceeds basically of that information.
1: Eddie, you seem like a guy that's going to write a book one day, maybe multiple books. Am I picking
0: up something? (laughs) When I was a kid, that was my dream uh, to write a book. I didn't care what it was going to be on, but I really wanted to write a book as a kid. But you're not there anymore. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm not there. That just seems far in the future. If it's going <laughs> to, is it going to be a work of fiction or nonfiction? <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I really wanted to do fiction. The older I've been, the more I wanted to write something nonfiction. Um, Okay, fair enough.
1: Not nonfiction, but not perfectly fact-based. Maybe some opinion thrown in there or storytelling to go along. Yeah,
0: honestly. So I had a a renaissance in wanting to write a book. I'd say like, uh, oh wow, time has flown. I was about to say two years ago, but I think it's actually four years ago. Um, So the summer before I did um, my my master's uh, in history, I spent the summer in France um, brushing up on my French. So I lived in Bordeaux and I did like French classes at Allianz Francais. But mainly I was just hanging out. Um, I I was really not doing anything. Um, And I read a whole lot. And that summer I kind of had a renaissance of like, yeah, maybe I should write something. And that summer I read a lot of these books in this genre. They're like autobiography, but not really. They're like enhanced autobiography uh so i read this book i, I mainly picked it up because i just thought the title was really funny uh because of my name it's called the end of eddie by this kid named Edouard. <laughs> 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 um but i'd also read this book called the idiot um by the, this woman elif batuma i want to say her name is but they're basically like autobiographical um but a lot of the details are either you know mixed up or slightly changed and you don't really know what's real what's not um, and I always thought that was a fun genre. That could be a fun one to write.
1: <laughs> I think you're gonna write one before you turn 40. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. I think Hans uh should do well. Um I, I hope guess. so. I think you, you you've got a part of the marketplace that's untapped. Uh I think or- that's
0: the whole thing is these businesses, people just aren't building for them. Uh and I My dream is that if we succeed in two years, someone it's as easy to build something for a small business as it is for anybody else. Um, And you don't worry about distribution or how am I going to sell this? You worry about, is this product good? Yeah, and then the rest of it,
1: with some sweat and some longer hours, will take care of itself. Yeah. Cool, man. All right, so Eddie, you you and I said about an hour. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about... uh, your family before we
0: end, and then I've got one fun question that I ask most of my guests. Sure, we can go slightly longer too if you prefer, but okay. yeah, I don't have a time limit. Um, but uh what was I gonna say? My family, anything specifically? No, just when I say tell me about your family, what would you what would you say? Uh, I would say my dad's Lebanese, my mom is British, um they both live in DC now. They're very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Are you an only kid? I am actually I'm an only child yeah my my parents actually divorced when I was when I was very, very young. Um,
1: but you still have relationships with both. So. yep yep
0: I uh, I did the very typical divorce thing of bouncing back and forth between the two. Bouncing like 50 50 or more mm-hmm. time yeah, before. yeah it was, it was a pretty hilarious uh, divorce agreement, I think. Uh, people actually usually can't believe or don't believe me when I tell them the agreement because I think it is a little absurd, but it worked out all right. Um, but basically I was I would sleep at my dad's house Mondays and Tuesdays and then at my mom's house Wednesdays and Thursdays. And then I would swap every other weekend at the two places. Um, yeah, that that's a lot of transitioning. It was a whole lot of transitioning. It also, I think, contributed to some of my attitudes around homework because it was really hard to. Uh, keep up with homework when you're moving so much uh and yeah yeah I and there.
1: i i imagine your 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 parents are, are different people and they emphasize very different, different people very different people but it sounds like they they're friendly these days yeah well when, when you're the topic they're friendly how about that yeah
0: yeah yeah they they're not like you know they don't hate each other or anything but I don't think they'd like grab a coffee. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> you mentioned a, a young lady that you're, you're seeing. How long have you all been dating? I think you've been dating now, long. She her
0: name. How about that? She goes by JJ. How long are
1: you and JJ been dating?
0: <laughs> um, about three years. Oh, wow. At this point. Or maybe two. and I, It's so hard with COVID, I'll be honest, Um, to be able to sense how long. I think it's actually closer to two. I always get confused with COVID timelines, I'll be honest. Um, but yeah, I think two years actually is, is more accurate. So the pandemic
1: had just started when you guys started? Yeah, dating?
0: we met literally in January of 2020. So yeah, so two right, right before the declaration, at least in, in the US. Yeah. yeah, I think the day we actually like decided we were dating was the day that uh, everything shut down, which is how I remember like our anniversary slash all of that is because it was March 11th. And March, I want to say 9th, uh, I had a business trip for Capital One because I was at Capital One at the time. Where we drove to Richmond. Um, we drove back March 11th, and that night I met up with her for drinks. And I got an email saying, "Don't come to the office tomorrow. It's like a test for COVID." And I never went back to the Capital One office again. And we started dating. So, kind of a momentous day, March 11th.
1: Right, so you you met her in January, but you started dating in March.
0: Yeah, we were just like
1: friends before that. Okay, got it. All right, cool. JJ, it is. Yeah. Is she really going to be mad if uh, she hears her whole yeah, name? I think so. Rob, are, are you noting the time here? That was around the hour mark. <laughs> I'll have to go in and edit. Am I going to get in trouble or get you in trouble if I don't edit that out?
0: Probably not, but, you know, better safe than sorry. All right. right, I'll. I'll uh, I've, I've done plenty
1: of editing in the last two years. I'm sure I could take care of that one. <laughs> All right, here's, here's the question I asked, folks, and you, you've listened to – two or three of these did you mm-hmm. all the way through the ones you listen to
0: I did not I okay, jumped around. so this will be new <laughs>
1: this, this will surprise you a little bit uh this is meant to be a little more revealing about you uh than the the typical uh questions and, and answers so you're a talk show host uh mm-hmm. you can bring on your own guests it's a one time only deal it, this is not going to be a series for you this is just a one-hour, one-day, one-night sort of thing. Your mm-hmm. guests can be alive or not. They can be famous or not. They they can be people you know or uh, or not. Um, your show can strive to be entertaining. It can be thought-provoking. It can be whatever you want it to be. You get to invite uh, in an interview a female guest, a male guest, and a musical guest. Who do you invite on your show? i can't like double up like the, uh, you, if you want to be creative and go outside the, the question
0: okay.
1: i get a pause almost every
0: time i ask yeah that. no i'm thinking um musical guest is like musical artist i would prefer to talk to in an interview or musical guest i would enjoy just like jamming out to while oh, you know both. in between okay <laughs> um so i'm a big uh Maybe a little, some people think it's embarrassing, but I am i don't care. I'm a huge Drake fan, so I would love to have <laughs> Drake. No, I'm I don't this. know what that means. Why would that be embarrassing? Because he's too commercial? Not necessarily that he's too commercial. I think he's just, he's definitely overstayed his welcome. Like I'll admit his more recent music isn't great. Um, and I think he's also just a little bit too generic for modern tastes, but mm i, I kind of grew up with him so i like him okay. <laughs> so i would have drake uh, yeah he also seems like a fun guy to be around honestly so drake would be my musical artist that's that's the easiest one if i get to pick two one that i'd like to interview um i really like the weekend as well so if i get to pick two i'd cop out and then have the, the weekend. weekend
1: is very very talented and uh a very bright guy is the impression i have
0: yeah i think so uh, yeah I obviously haven't interviewed him. So if you can set this up, that'd be great, but sure, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll work with <laughs> <for> <laughs> well, you, you, you living people. So there's a chance. Yeah. Yeah. There is a chance. <laughs> uh, so those are my two musical guests. Uh, interview subjects. Um...
1: <laughs> Sorry. Just no, you're thinking. good. It's, it's all good. I, I'm trying to stay quiet. So you can think. <laughs> Which one are you thinking about right now, male or female?
0: Oh, I keep going back and forth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Back to the Brett thing. You don't want to stay in place too long.
0: Yeah. um, Female, this is pretty corny, I'll admit. um, But it's the best answer I can come up with, um, is my grandmother on my dad's side died when I was relatively young. And I obviously knew her, like I I think she died when I was, you know, not like eight or nine, let's say, I don't remember the exact year, but, uh, you know, I knew her, but I never like had an intelligent conversation with her, you know, Um, so I think it'd be really interesting to be able to have an intelligent, like thought out conversation with her where I'm like an adult, Um, I think that'd be cool.
1: And your dad probably has a lot of uh, positive and nice things to say about his mom.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, but it's always, it's different because I don't actually know her. You know what I mean? Like my memory is just, uh, a woman who made amazing French fries, but that's not really, um, that's not, you know, who a person is. <laughs> so I'd really love to be able to actually like get to know her and, and know, uh, and know her well beyond the French fries. Yeah.
1: Our French, so
0: your grandmother grew up in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My grandmother's Lebanese. French fries are, are a thing. French fries are a huge thing in Lebanon. But uh, one of the funniest things with Lebanese food, actually, I think, is how French fries find their way in it. It's like in Lebanon, if you get a wrap or a burger and you order fries as well, you might think that the fries come on the side. Nope. They put the fries in the wrap or the burger, um, which is always a funny thing for people who are new to Lebanon. Uh, Yeah, that's got to affect the taste in a dramatic way, right? I'm a big fan. So I I still I do it. But yeah, it is. It is a dramatically different, and I was actually shocked uh, when I when I first encountered that. Cool. All right, that's a great answer. I love that answer. Right. Cool. Uh, male. Let me think. Uh, I would say uh, this is going in a completely different direction, um, but the historian who I first read who I really really liked and kind of uh made me interested in history as like an academic discipline versus just oh these are some cool facts and they give a history for cool places um and more kind of like hey like this is a real discipline and something that's worth spending time with and thinking deeply about um was Eric Hobsbawm you know who that is Mm -mm. um yeah he's he's a historian uh, and my my history teacher had actually given me uh, his book *Age of Extremes*, which was one of those first books that really like sparked my curiosity in, in history academically. Um, so I think he's dead now, and uh, meeting him would be pretty cool. You're looking up whether he's alive or dead. Yeah, I'm curious. What's spelled his last name? Sure, he's dead. Uh, yeah, he's very dead. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Eric uh, Hobsbawm, H-O-B-S-B-A-W-M okay it's a unique, unique name it is a unique name i don't know what it's what the origin is yeah i don't either weird all right so eh, okay all right so that's quite a,
1: an eclectic group there
0: <laughs> yeah i guess so
1: you see your yeah. grandmother sitting next to the weekend i think she'd
0: jam out but really i don't know right <laughs> that'd be part of the fun of finding out what type of music does she like don't know so. I think she'd probably like The weekend's music. I'd hope so,
1: yeah. Very cool. So uh, back to the, the – we'll end with the uh, the breadth comment. Hansa, what's your uh, horizon for the, the range where you're like, hey, the soonest we'll be successful is X number of months or years away and the longest that I'm willing to uh, make a good faith effort here. Have you thought that way or is it
0: much more oh. – over- I don't think you can make a decision where you're potentially like, well, I'm, my entrepreneurship and residence ends mid July. And from that point on, I I won't be taking a salary. So it's really hard to make a decision like that without (laughs) having that in mind. Uh, I think it's important, in fact, to set an end date, um, to keep yourself sane a little bit. And I've kind of given myself a year minimum, uh, from that date that I would keep working on it, unless something obvious happened where it's like, this is the stupidest idea known to man. You should do something else. Then I I would obviously reconsider. I'm not that stubborn. Um, But I'd give it at least a year and then reconsider, like, hey, how are things going? Is this working? Do I have any signs of traction? If the answer is yes, I would give it another year. Um, If after that there's nothing, I have run out of resources, and I will be looking for a job. Um, So one to two years is sort of the horizon of I'm going to give this a shot. How long do I think it will take to actually work if we're successful? Um, The answer is I've never done this before and I have no idea. But I'm hoping it's within that one to two year timeline. Are you having fun? I'm having a great time. I think that is not always true, though. Uh, It's interesting at Qualify, they actually had these monthly entrepreneurship discussions where they would bring in an entrepreneur And one of them had said, you know, some days I feel like on top of the world, I feel like it's the greatest decision I've ever made. And some days I just feel like an idiot and I just, it's horrible. (laughs) And I resonate with that. I think the good days are far outpacing the bad days now, as I've really come to peace and gotten in a groove of what I'm doing. But especially after the first month, like we hit our first milestone in the first month where we like published a website, we went public and we had like done so much. And at the end of that first month, I just sat down and I was like, what now? (laughs) What do I do? Uh, And it took me a couple of days to really realize like, well, I get to decide what we do. Uh, I have to trust myself that what we're doing is is right. I just got to start making decisions um, and sticking to them and setting goals and being ambitious about getting them and just try my best from there. And so ever since I kind of came to that realization, it's been a lot better. Uh, but there are still days where I'm just like, wow, it'd be a lot easier to have a real job. <laughs> was today a good day? Today was a great day, actually. Um, <laughs> That's cool. This week has been really good. Um, just made it, one of the interesting things with doing this is I hadn't like coded for a long time in any sort of professional capacity um and for this i'm you know our lead engineer as we went over uh and it's been really interesting going back to my roots there relearning a lot of things and just growing back into the engineer i might have been a few years ago that's been a really interesting journey and if nothing else i have Learn how to be a professional software engineer again. So I could always go back to that. now. <laughs> do you want to do that? No, I don't think so. Um, but it's an option. And if you had to, sure. If I had to.
1: Yeah. You
0: need to eat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: hey, Eddie, uh, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate you uh, making the effort yesterday. Uh, uh, of course. Again, I apologize for my technical difficulties uh, on my end. But uh, yeah, great talking to you. I, I love learning a lot more about you and uh, I wish you nothing but the best in general. Uh, and certainly with Hans, I hope uh, you go to the moon with that.
0: Thank you. I hope so too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at